Thank you, thank you. As he said, my name's Chris. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to do that. My family and I have been here on Sundays for a couple months now. Uh, they're sitting back there somewhere. Um, but yeah, as, uh, as he said a moment ago, uh, I now serve at Tusculum University down in Greenville. I'm the campus minister there, so um, kind of chaplain on campus, ministering to students and faculty and staff and leading the chapel program, different things like that. Uh, before that, I was pastor of a sister church here in town, and so I've uh, known Pastor Travis for uh, several years now. appreciate his friendship and just um, his encouragement over the years and through this transition for me. And Is that just up here that I hear that crazy buzz? Okay. I'll trust them. They know what they're doing back there. I was just making sure. So, again, appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here with you today. And if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open it to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is where we're going to be today, and as you're finding that, um, let me share with you a little story that I heard a few years ago. We'll get there. All right, do I need to move or something, maybe? No? No, no, don't do do that. That was worse. All right. All right, so several years ago, I heard this story about a man who was just a wicked man terrible, feared criminal, Uh, the kind of person that just struck fear in the hearts of everyone around him. I mean, his entire city was, was just caught up in a wave of terror because of There we go. Does that work? All right. So, where were we? <laughs> so, uh, wicked criminal, wave of terror throughout the city. Everybody was just paranoid because of this man. Nobody knew who he was, but they all knew he was out there, and he was doing really terrible, horrible things. And so, everybody was just sort of living on pins and needles, like wondering what's going to happen. Who is this guy? Am I going to run into him? Well, eventually, he was identified, and he was caught. He was put in prison because of his crimes, and there was just, as you can imagine, a huge sigh of relief. Everybody was just sort of like, oh, finally, that's over. He's he's put away. He's locked in prison. We don't have to worry about him anymore. But we all know how these things sort of work. A few years later, he came up for parole. And so there was a lot of shock. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of hurt. Like, how in the world... Could we let this man out of prison considering what he's done and the type of person that he is? So there was just outrage. But in the middle of all that outrage, this man really shocked everybody because he released a statement from prison saying this. I have no interest in parole and no plans to seek release. If you could understand this, I'm already a free man. I'm not saying that jokingly. I really am. Jesus Christ has already pardoned me. So if people were shocked before, they were really shocked now. If they were confused before, if they weren't quite sure what to think before, now they were really, 
confused, like, this guy, really? Is somebody like this even possible of, of being forgiven? I mean, is that, is that okay? Shouldn't we, like, not want him to be forgiven because of what he's done? People just didn't know how to handle this situation. Of all people, this man claiming to be forgiven, and, and as he spoke, he actually did seem at peace. He actually even seemed happy. Well, this is really a true story. The criminal was a man named David Berkowitz. He was the son of Sam, a serial killer who terrorized New York City over a period of 13 months in 1976 and 1977. He's currently serving six consecutive life sentences in maximum security prison up in New York. And those words, that statement I read a moment ago, came from a letter he wrote to national media a few years ago when he was up for parole. So I've got to admit it, when I read that story and when I read that statement from the Son of Sam, even I was a little skeptical, like, really? Maybe this is just sort of some like you know plot to get his name out in the media again. Maybe he's just wanting attention. Like I was sort of skeptical, and I think a lot of people were. But the truth is that those of us who are Christians we should understand better than anybody the change that can take place when somebody finds forgiveness through Jesus. If anybody should accept the words of a man like that who's been in a situation like that, it should be us. Because we too have received pardon and forgiveness from Jesus. We should know more than anybody else the joy that can come into your heart because of that forgiveness. So in Psalm 32 today, we're going to read some words written by another man named David who had also done some pretty wicked stuff. And we're going to read about his experience of being forgiven and, and, and the liberation that he felt when he found forgiveness in the Lord. So Psalm 32, we begin reading in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore... Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. This is your word. We believe that. Help us to receive it now as we should, with humility and gratitude and, and eager belief. An expectation that, that as you speak, you will do something in us 
to make us into the people you want us to be. So work now in these few moments. We trust that you will, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, this is a psalm of David. It says that at the very beginning. And and again, if you know anything about his life, you know that this is something he can tell us about from personal experience, right? This is something that he knew firsthand. And he starts this psalm with a very familiar word, blessed. That's a good Bible word, right? Everybody knows the Beatitudes where Jesus uses the, the Greek equivalent of this. So, blessed. I'm afraid that sometimes we become so familiar with those Bible words that we don't really understand the full meaning or the full significance. Somebody says, how you doing? I'm blessed, brother. Okay, that sounds good. Um, count your blessings, right? Well, we, we understand what's meant by that, but, but see, there's a sense in which we think we can be blessed, and yet still things aren't going very well. <laughs> that's not exactly what's in view here. The Hebrew word that's used here is the word ashray which is used 26 times throughout the book of Psalms. It's really notably used at the very beginning of the Psalms. And really, the word simply means happy. Happy or joyful. Some translations even make it that way here in in our modern English. Joyful. How joyful is this person? And we understand that a bit better, don't we? We understand what it means to be happy, to be joyful, Anybody see what was going on in Knoxville last night? Those people were happy. Those people were joyful. And, and I'll admit, even in my living room, there was some joy last night. We understand what it means to be really happy about something. And that's what we should be thinking when we read the word blessed here in Psalm 32. This is about true and lasting joy that's present because of what God has done. So, again, who is this happy person? Who is the person that's so joyful? It's the person whose transgression is covered, whose sin is forgiven. It's the person who understands the depth of their guilt before God and the extent of God's grace. So, verse 1 again. Verse 1. Uh, Let me get there. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's an interesting term right there, covered. Proverbs 28.13 says, He that covers his sin shall not prosper. So if you try to cover your own sin, it's not going to work. You won't prosper. That makes me think of Adam and Eve, right? What did they try to do when they found out they were guilty before God and they understood their shame? They tried to cover themselves. didn't work. It wasn't sufficient. So if you try to cover your own sin, it won't work. But here, blessing, joy comes to the person whose sin has been covered by God. Not by anything they've done in and of themselves. This is God graciously covering somebody's sin. And I think we need to be really careful here because covering could be understood in different ways. Like somebody could read this and, and sort of assume this means that God like just kind of brushes your sin under the rug, covers it up, acts like it's not there. It's no big deal. We don't need to worry about that. That's not what happens here. That's not ever how God treats sin. God takes sin very seriously. So he doesn't just sort of ignore it or look over it. No, through 
Christ, through Christ's death and resurrection, God actually does away with our sins. He removes them from us. They are totally gone. This is one of the most amazing and I think most comforting truths in the whole Bible. He forgives us of our sin and then he totally removes it from us. So that if we are united to Christ by faith, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the purity, the perfection, the righteousness of Christ. Our status is is not dirty and condemned. Our status is innocent and righteous and pure. We see this over and over and over throughout the scriptures. I think about Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, where the priest is instructed to to bring in two goats. You remember what he does to these? One, he, he slaughters as a sacrifice for the sin of the people. And then you remember what he does with the second goat? He lays his hands on this animal, confesses over it all the sins of the people, and then what do they do? They send it out into the wilderness, basically allowing symbolically that those sins to be transferred to that animal, and then that animal shooed away where it will never be heard from again. Those sins are gone. They are removed. It's a picture of what Christ does for us. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far he, does he remove our transgressions. Isaiah 43, 25, God blots out our transgressions and remembers our sins no more. In John 1, 9, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what David's talking about here. The fact that through the, God's work on our behalf, Our sins are taken from us, removed from us. So the bad news is that we can't cover our sins on our own. The good news, though, is that we don't have to. God does that for us. God takes care of our sin problem for us. And this is something that really makes the Christian faith, the gospel, unique and precious. I read not long ago a quote from a liberal arts professor here in the U.S. who had tried all sorts of Eastern and New Age religions and found that none of them really dealt with her feeling of guilt and shame. Here's what she said. In all that journey, the main thing that was missing that kept me coming back to Jesus was where's the provision for sin? The path for me, the yoga path, the Reiki path, or any of the others that I would study and look at, I just had nowhere to take my sins, and they were weighing me down. There was no place to go with all that. There was no place to say, who's going to forgive me? That's the big difference, if people want to know, between all the other things that I did and searched and studied and read about and gave my life to. Jesus is the only one who says, I came here, I went through this for you to forgive your sins. He set me free. He was there. He healed me. So if we understand the depth of our sin, if we're honest with ourselves about the ugliness of our sin, this should really amaze us. We can begin to understand just how ugly our sin is if we look at the way that David describes it here in these first few verses. There's a really interesting thing he does here even with the words that he chooses. He uses three different words to refer to our sin problem. In verse 1, we see the word transgression. Now, obviously, that's English translation, but we see this first word here, and that carries the idea of rebellion, right? 
And let's just admit it, we are rebels. We have chosen to go our own way and do our own thing instead of submitting to God. So that's transgression. Next in verse 1, we also see sin. That's the word we're most familiar with. It carries the idea of of a deliberate offense, an intentional wrongdoing. If you're if you're the parent of a toddler, you know this well, right? This is that defiant, like, oh, yeah? That's the idea here. And then third, in verse 2, we see the word iniquity. And, and that really just refers to simply sort of just wandering off the path, going astray, going crooked in some way. So three different words there to refer to our sin problem before God. And, and he's not saying that those are three specific types of sin. He's just using those different words to basically help us look at our problem from all these different angles to see just how gross and ugly it really is. You know how when you look at a diamond from different angles, you see the beauty and the purity of it in different ways? This is kind of the exact opposite of that. This is how bad our problem really is. But just as David uses three words to describe our problem, he also uses three different terms to describe God's solution to the problem. This is really cool. First, we see the word there, forgiveness. God forgives our sin. Second, as we've already talked about, we see covers. And then third, in verse 2, he does not count or charge us with iniquity. That's like in a courtroom setting where someone is charged with a crime. God doesn't charge us in this way. So, yes, our sin is great, but God's grace is greater. Our sin, as awful as it is, is no match for the grace of God. This is good news. This is the gospel. If you understand this, if you really grasp what God has done for you, how can you not be happy, as we see in verse 1? So in these first couple verses, David sort of just gives us the big idea, like here's the truth I want you to understand. The blessing of forgiveness. Then in verses 3 through 5, he gives us his own testimony about this. He said, okay, this is what I want you to know. Now here's how I know this is true. So look at the way David describes his own experience here. In verses 3 and 4, he says, my bones wasted away. My strength was dried up. That sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? I mean, he was in bad shape. His sin was weighing so heavily on him, he felt that burden in such a real way that it seemed to manifest itself in very physical ways. He could feel it in his bones. He could feel his sin eating away at him like a cancer, stealing his strength. And I wonder if you've ever felt that way. Has there ever been some sin in your life that you were trying to deal with on your own you were trying to cover it up you're trying to even keep it hidden maybe you were so ashamed that you didn't even want to talk to God about it in prayer your sin will eat you alive if you let it and the truth is that none of us are equipped to deal with sin on our own that is a weight we cannot carry David says when he kept silent, he wasted away. He left, he lost all of his strength. And, and even in those times when we're tempted to sort of hide our sin and deal with it on our own, let's be honest. 
can we really hide it from God anyway? <laughs> no. We can't hide it from God. And even if we try to just push it down and act like it's not there, eventually it's going to show up. It's going to find its way into our thoughts and our fears and our dreams. It's like, it's like that little blade of grass that somehow manages to push through the concrete in the sidewalk. Again, we can't deal with this on our own. What we need in order to deal with our sin is not secret keeping, but confession and repentance. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what David discovered here. Look again at verse 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is the moment of deliverance. This is the moment of freedom. This is the moment that leads to the joy he described in verse 1. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is what? Nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. This is what David has discovered. This is what he's experiencing. And so I want to ask you, do you know that kind of joy? Can you say that's your experience? If not, is it because you've never really turned from your sin and trusted in Christ and his sacrificial substitutionary death and resurrection? Is it because you've never placed your faith in that? Or, or maybe is it because even though you know that's where your, your hope lies, in reality, in the day-to-day -day of your life, you're actually trying to deal with your sin in your own strength and in your own wisdom. If so, it's not going to work. When we feel the weight of our sin, when we understand just how deep our problem is, what do we need to do about it? Take it straight to the Lord. That's, that's what David tells us here. So, again, in the first few verses, he gives us the, the, big, the big idea, the main truth. Then in verses 3 through 5, he gives us his experience. Then at the end, in verses 6 through 11, he kind of gives us the application. All right, in light of all this, here's what you need to do. I've told you the, the main idea. I've told you, like, my own experience of these things. I know it's true because of what I've been through. So in light of all that, here's what you need to do. And I think it's important for us to understand that this is actually the normal pattern in Scripture. Over and over and over, when we're told of something that we need to do, when we're given a command, that command is based on a truth about who God is or what God has done for us. We see this over and over. So in the New Testament, Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So he appeals to us on the basis of the mercies of God to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. By the time he gets to Romans chapter 12, Paul has spent 11 chapters detailing the amazing wisdom and work of God. And it's based on all that that he then says, okay, now here's what you need to do. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So why should we stand firm? Because he set us free. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So God is at work. He's doing something. Therefore, you ought to be working too. You ought to get busy. So we see this pattern over and over in Scripture, and it's exactly what David's giving us here. And the reason I think it's important for us to realize this and and see this pattern is because if we're not careful, we'll get it backwards. We'll think, I have to do something in order for God to do something for me. I have to sort of get my stuff in order before he will bless me and make me a happy, joyful person. That's not the way it works. God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves when we were totally helpless and hopeless. And because he's done that, our job is simply to respond to what he's already begun and initiated. So, David says in verses uh, 6 and 7, He says there, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. He's actually addressing God here. And he's speaking to God. Let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. What does that mean? Does that mean God has like office hours? (laughs) Like, you know, 8 to 3, Mondays and Tuesdays? No. It means that while God's ear is open now and he hears our prayers of repentance and faith now... The scary truth is that there's coming a day when there won't be any more chances given. There's a day of judgment coming. And if you've not yet turned to Christ in repentance and faith, the day is coming when you you will have missed out. It will be too late. So, So don't miss out on this opportunity while it's here. I mean, think about it. Even right now, in this very moment, God is showing all of us really unbelievable kindness. We are sinners who don't deserve anything good from him. And yet here we are listening to the word of God, hearing his offer of forgiveness and salvation. Don't waste this opportunity. We so often take this sort of thing for granted. We come to church We listen to the scriptures, we hear the word of God taught, and we just sort of walk out the door like nothing special has happened. This is a big deal. So don't take this for granted. Don't waste this opportunity. A day is coming when you'll no longer be able to respond to the word of God in this way. But David goes on at the end of verse 6. In the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. So when the flood comes, when the waters rise, when trouble comes, you'll be safe on high ground where the waters can't reach you. Verse 7, David says, the Lord is his hiding place who preserves him from times of trouble. Think about that. Go back just a few verses, right? In verse 4, God's hand was heavy upon him as his strength was being dried up. Now, now God is his hiding place who preserves him. 
What a change has taken place. Everything's different now. What, what was it that made this difference, this change possible in David's life? It's that he confessed his sin and he trusted in God's provision. And, and I hope you know that experience too. I hope you know that joy and that change that can take place. When I was a kid growing up in church, we sang a hymn that, that said it this way, what a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. Right? You remember that? Anybody else sing that? Right? Floods of joy overflow like the sea billows roll since Jesus came into my heart. This is what David wants for us. This is why he's telling us how we should respond here. So in verse 8, he's sort of speaking for the Lord here. He says, I will instruct you. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So think about it. David's eye isn't on us, but God's is. God is watching over us. God is guiding us and leading us and protecting us and preserving us. And, and if you know God as your father and savior, that should be a very comforting thought. He's watching over me. If you're in the position David was describing earlier in the psalm, though, that's probably not a very comforting thought. Like if you're still trying to handle your sin on your own and you know God's looking down on you, that's probably not very comforting. But it should be if we understand what David's saying here. In the very next chapter in Psalm 33, verse 18 says, The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. And then verse 18 tells us why. That he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So this is what God promises to us. This is the goodness of what he's offering. And so therefore the, the, the application is, is really clear. Verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it won't stay near you. Our daughter loves to ride horses. I have watched her try to deal with a stubborn horse. It's not easy. It's not pretty. It's a difficult, challenging thing. David's saying, don't be like that. Don't be so stubborn. Would anybody else here admit you're sometimes stubborn? Even if I didn't admit it, my wife is right back there. She can tell you the truth. I tend to be stubborn. David's saying, don't do that. Don't wait till you're forced into this willingly. Choose to go to God for this amazing offer of salvation finally look at verses 10 and 11 this psalm ends with the very same theme it began the joy of those who know the lord david describes these people as righteous and upright in heart very similar to verse 2 where he said the one in whose spirit there is no deceit again if we know ourselves well we're thinking, well, that's not me. <laughs> I know myself well enough to say I'm not totally upright in heart. I, I sometimes am marked by deceit. But the gospel tells us, again, that if we're united by faith to Christ, this is us. This is that great exchange where he takes our sin, deals with it for us, and then gives us his righteousness. So, again, when God looks at you, Christian, he sees the perfection of Jesus. That's why you can be joyful. He cleanses us. He clothes us with the perfection of Christ. And then verse 10 says, Steadfast love surrounds us when we trust in him. This is one of my absolute favorite Bible verses. The Hebrew word is the word chesed. 
which is kind of hard to say, I know. But it speaks of God's special, loyal, covenant love that's only for his people. Not just the generic way that God loves the world, but the love he has for us, his children. The Jesus Storybook Bible that we've used over the years in our family to teach our children describes it this way. It's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. (laughs) I love that. And that's the love that God has for us. So, we should shout for joy. (laughs) We should shout for joy because God has forgiven us. He's turned our groaning into shouts of joy. And so once again, let me just ask you, When you're honest with yourself, do you know this joy? If not, why not? You can know it today if you will turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. I began by sharing that story about David Berkowitz and the joy and peace he found when he trusted in Jesus. I want to end by sharing another quote from him. This is his recollection of that moment when he finally fell to his knees, hit the floor, and cried out to God. When he trusted in Jesus for salvation. It happened after he was reading the book of Psalms. Specifically, he read Psalm 34, 6, where it says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. He read that verse, he cried out, and here's how he explains it. I told him that I was sick and tired of doing evil. I asked Jesus to forgive me for all my sins. I spent a good while on my knees praying to him. And when I got up, it felt as if a very heavy but invisible chain that had been around me for so many years was broken. A peace flooded over me. I did not understand what was happening, but in my heart, I just knew that my life somehow was going to be difference blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered is that you if not it can be cry out to the lord while he may be found let's pray father once again we thank you for your word for the truth that we find here the comfort we find here. We thank you for the gospel, the fact that you have done more than what we could have asked or even imagined. You have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. You've saved us, given us new and eternal life in Christ. Help us now to respond as we should. Help us to receive your truth and humility to understand all that you've done and to respond in faith and obedience and repentance, God. Whether that's for the first time or the thousandth time, God, help us to to not just let this go in one ear and out the other. Help us to, to receive this and let it really soak down deep into our hearts and change us from the inside out. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna sing a song here as we do that and as you consider what God's word has said, I'll be hanging around. I'll be around after the service as well. If there's any way that I can help you or or pray with you or anything at all, uh, just know that I'd be happy to do that.